Brian's going to uh, bring one more very fitting song to us uh, at the end of the service, uh, Old Lang Syne. So how many of you have sung that before? A thousand times? So that's coming. So look forward to that. Uh, thank you again for being here today. I start a new series called Becoming Our True Selves. You might wonder, what is this true selves thing? And have I, how many of you probably, if you've been around Crosswalk a while, you've probably heard the phrase before because I use it a lot at least sporadically. Um, true self is an idea. The idea of it uh, was really uh, put forth by a guy named Thomas Merton. Uh, Thomas Merton in the 50s and 60s was uh, sort of the Richard Rohr of his day. Uh, he was a priest who had uh, incredible insight uh, into theology, the presence of God, contemplation, meditation. He was a global figure. Uh, and wrote many books that were quite compelling. Uh, one of his most famous ones called The Seven-Story Mountain has to do with how we develop our, our human beingness uh, in relationship with God. And uh, he coined the phrase true self, which really talks about who we are really meant to be uh, when you strip away all the nonsense, all the pressures that the world puts on us. Because all of us are these incredibly unique uh, incarnate beings, if you will. Um, God is everywhere in everything, and so we're not separate from God. God is a part of us. It's within us. Uh, when we breathe and we do meditation, while it might not be theological, it is deeply spiritual because we cannot not be <laughs> spiritual when we're breathing. That's just part of it. We are in this thing uh, together. And so um, really the beauty of what's possible for us is to answer the question, you know, what happens when you mix the weird DNA mix that is who we are, the, the gene structure, all of that that we inherited, the history that we've come into, what, what beautiful thing is possible uh, with us and God if we really dial into that and filter out the noise, filter out the pressures uh, that really have nothing to do with the Spirit of God but are pervasive nonetheless. That's what true self is all about. And I think when we find ourselves living in that way, which, by the way, I think is the way that Jesus was teaching, I think he was living the most true self that we've ever seen uh, before. And it was magic. I mean, what he did with his life, his insights, everything was just pure magic. And so when we, uh, when we think about this, this is really the goal that we have, and that's where we have the most beautiful life experience that I think is possible that doesn't require a lot of the trappings that maybe culture says you must have in place to have a wonderful life. Because living in our true self, living in that kind of depth, that kind of rootedness with God, uh, doesn't require uh, personal possessions. It doesn't require um, that everything's going perfect in your life. It doesn't require world peace. There is, there is a way of being that is deeper than all the noise. And that's what we're after. What would happen if we were living from that kind of a center and living forward in that? And I was thinking about, uh, you know, are there any people, and today we're taking a look at the dark wood of error. I'll talk more about what the heck that means in a moment. Um, but I was thinking biblically, you know, have there ever been any people that have not been living in their truest self? And the dark wood of error kind of refers to being in this murky space where we're not quite ourselves. We're not functioning the way that we ought to. Uh, and we know it. We usually are in kind of a confused state. I'll go over this in more detail later. But we know we're not living up to our best. We're, not, we're kind of living in what Rohr would call a small self, not our true self. 
or sort of swayed by other things, our past hurts and the ways those things have shaped us or current uh, pressures that might be on us. And I thought, are there any biblical stories, you know, where people weren't exactly at their best, uh, where they were making decisions that somehow were not motivated from the presence of God in their life, but from something much less, but was still strong. And so I just started thinking at the beginning of that, well, Adam and Eve were in the dark wood for sure. Uh, they found themselves confused. And Cain and Abel, well, yep, they were kind of in there. And fast forward a little bit, uh, Noah, uh, for all of his uh, ark building and world saving, um, there are a couple moments in there that, <laughs> you know, he would probably like to erase from Facebook, <laughs> you know, if he could. Uh, you go a little bit further and you get into our patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, one point or another, all of them found themselves in the dark wood where they just realized, I'm not exactly acting, you know, the way that I think I'm supposed to be acting. Not in a legalistic, judgy kind of thing. They just, it's almost like they weren't home in their cells, like an alien was taking over their body or something. And they're, they're behaving, they're making decisions that, you know, on, on their best days they would never ever make, but here they are making these decisions. So that's like most of Genesis right there where every major character uh, is finding themselves in the dark wood at some point. And then um, you go into the next book which is Exodus and we're introduced to Moses and Aaron. Well, Moses found himself in the dark wood of error on multiple occasions and it was a mess up of his life. Aaron, uh, same kind of a thing. The more I went through biblical history and just kept thinking about different characters, I just thought every single major character in the Bible has found themselves at one point or another in the dark wood of error where they're not really operating as their true selves, but a smaller self. And they eventually, most of them, come around and they find the way all over again. I mean, we can go all the way uh, to the very end of the Bible. Um, one story, which is really a story, it's not a historical story, uh, but the, the, the prophet Jonah, that whole story of Jonah and the well, that's one whopper, a uh, long walk through the dark wood of error where Jonah just never quite gets it. <laughs> the whole story never gets it. He's in the dark wood of error the whole time. Uh, you jump into the New Testament. Every one of the disciples, you can chronicle them, you can trace them, found themselves in the dark wood of error, not, not always acting as they really wanted to from their deepest places. The Apostle Paul, who was a Johnny-come-lately, had some major, uh, major messes when he was in the dark wood of error, even as he was this champion of the cause of Jesus Christ. And I'll even tell you, Jesus himself on at least a couple of occasions found himself in the dark wood of error where if he could go back and erase a couple Instagram posts he would but it's left there for us and it's wonderful that it is because all of these stories tell us that what we're talking about here is a very human experience that we can even anticipate it and expect it uh, one of the Whopper stories, and I won't go through the whole thing today, has to do with uh, King David. He had this little chapter in 2 Samuel 11, uh, well-known uh, foible in his life, uh, where he found himself in the arms of Bathsheba. We won't go into that whole story. I'll probably save that uh, for another week. But just let me let you know, this is the guy who was coined 
the man after God's own heart. This is a guy who was a brilliant poet and gave us so many of the Psalms talking about his dedication and love for God. This is a guy who was so excited about worshiping God that at one time uh, he was so into his worship experience leading the people in worship, you know, after major battle and stuff, that he pretty much stripped off everything but a loincloth and was making an utter fool of himself, much to his wife's chagrin, uh, who got on him about it, <laughs> said, please don't ever do that again. <laughs> And he said, I, would, I, I have no problem being a fool for God. This is that guy who's that fully devoted guy. And yet, in a couple junctures in his life, he was in the dark wood of error. And we're going to find out in subsequent weeks why that is. Well, some of what I'm working with today is uh, re related to a book that I read while I was on sabbatical this summer. Uh, which I found really, really interesting. It's a book by a woman named Martha Beck. She's a Harvard-trained sociologist, Ph.D., and she does a lot of uh, coaching uh, with some pretty high-profile high people. Uh, she comes from a Christian-ish background, uh, so she's very familiar with the Christian faith and all of its trappings. Uh, and in this particular book, what grab, grabbed me uh, in this is she plays with Dante's Divine Comedy. Now, Churchianity has a special relationship with Dante because we took his divine comedy and looked at particularly the chapter on the inferno which appears to be this journey through hell and we went crazy with it. Uh, we decided that that must be what hell looks like. Now this guy lived many, many, many centuries after Jesus. Uh, he lived more centuries after Jesus than before us, all right? So uh, this is a very long time ago, and his work, uh, the, Infer the Inferno, that particular chapter, the Divine Comedy, he was just making stuff up. Uh, he was a philosopher and a poet, and he was just thinking out loud about different realities that he wanted to convey, but it stuck in such a visceral way that we just assume that that must be what's true. Well, what Martha Beck recognizes in a dancing with, uh, with Dante is that actually Dante was trying to give us some help. He wasn't trying to scare us into the arms of God because of what we might see in the inferno, but actually he's trying to tell us something about ourselves, about the human experience, and about the goodness of God and about hope. And so this book, which uh, you know, she titled The Way of Integrity, which the way of integrity is your true self. The way of integrity is the way of Jesus, is that living out of your rootedness about who you really are. And she found some powerful, powerful things there. Uh, you're welcome to uh, download a copy of the Divine Comedy. Um, there are some modern translations that are pretty pretty well done, so they're understandable. You're not going back to some old poetry that's, uh, you know, more like 12th grade reading or, or whatever. Um, and there are even some that, you know, are total PDF and you can mark them up and make notes and they're annotated and all that stuff. So I hope you'll do that. One of the things that she notices uh, in this book, and I'm giving you, by the way, if you're wanting to follow along, if you're interested in that book, find it on your own. Uh, it's on my uh, blog today. Um, I'm going like a chunk at a time. So I'm giving you three chapters today. We're going to be here till about 2 o'clock. 
and then, uh, then we'll go on from there. So looking at section one today, section two, section three, and section four, about three chapters each one, and I'll try to give you the overview uh, to whet your appetite. Well, one of the things that she points out uh, is that Dante begins his tale, the Divine Comedy, um, in the dark wood of error, in the middle of the story. We don't know what happened to get Dante into the dark wood of error, but he knows he's lost. He knows he's in a space that is scary, it's nerve-wracking, he knows he's not home, he wants to get out of it, it's not a space that he longs to be in. And isn't that just how we do a good story? Any Star Wars nerds in here? It's okay, it's a safe place, go ahead and admit it. I'm a Star Wars nerd, I love it. Uh, what was the first Star Wars movie, in terms of its order of all the Star Wars major movies, not the side things and all that, but what was the number of the movie that, that they started with, you know? It was number four. Now when I heard that it was number four, I was like, did somebody make a mistake? <laughs> We're supposed to start at one and figure it out, but wasn't it brilliant to start in the middle of the story? So you enter into a middle of a story where there's already a mess. That's what Dante is doing. It's just utter literary brilliance. He starts with Dante himself in the dark wood of error, where we all at one point or another in our lives find ourselves. Because it's the human experience. It doesn't mean you're an idiot. It doesn't mean you've committed some terrible sin. It means that you're a human being because we all find ourselves there. And you may be there right now. Maybe your experience going into 2023 is you're like, man, I'm in the dark wood of error right now and I want to get out of it. These are some uh, things that you may feel if you're in the dark wood of error and you're feeling lost. You may be feeling purposeless in your life. You may be in a state of emotional misery. Uh, you may be experiencing some physical deterioration and, and what Beck says um, she says that obviously there are lots of things that uh, could contribute to these kinds of symptoms, but, but there have been studies that show that when we are under tremendous stress, it does things to our physical body. So you may have more aches and pains happening in your body and maybe even some more severe things that are related to the fact that you're under the stress of being in the dark wood of error because they're related. Uh, maybe you're having some consistent relationship failures and you're just not quite sure what's going on there or consistent career failures or just persisting bad habits. Where are you on this? And by the way, you don't, you don't, this is not a one and done thing. It's not like, oh, I'm in the dark wood of error. As soon as I'm out of this, 2024 will be better probably because I'm, I'm not, I'm done with dark wood of error. No. Uh, Beck will say uh, from her own life experience and her autobiography or her, her biographical stuff, whew, pretty compelling. I mean, it's a book, in my opinion, worth reading. Uh, but she admits that she has many return visits to the dark wood of error because we're human beings and because there are other things in the mix that take us there. It all belongs that way. It's not a bad thing, it's just the reality of things. She also says, and I'll say this to you, that this whole series and her book, it's just a tool. It's, it does not replace therapy. There could be things on this list that uh, are based on significant trauma in your lives that this book is not going to touch, and she will be, she does say it in the book. She says, it could be that you've been through some very significant trauma and you need professional help. 
That's why Bill and Joni are here on the very first week, <laughs> just to let you know we have professionals <laughs> at, our, at your disposal. So anyway, just this is a tool that I hope will help you uh, see where you are in life. And using Dante's play with this whole idea of the inferno and dark wood, I hope it improves your life. That's my only agenda uh, with any of this. So here's what I want to do, and she gives really fantastic exercises, which she then publishes and makes for free uh, on her website, uh, which I've found very interesting and helpful. And by the way, that's the other reason I'm talking about it. it. It was helpful to me as I was in sabbatical and trying to sort things out and figure out where I am in my life and who I am and who do I want to be. That's what sabbatical is partly all about. Um, I came across her book, and there was a lot that resonated with me that made sense. And so that's generally how I roll here, stuff that I find interesting and that impacts me and I thought was an aha moment. I just, I make you suffer uh, with it as well, <laughs> which is why we're all here together. So anyway, here's what we're talking about with dark wood of error. And one of the things that she talks about is just admitting that you're in the dark wood of error, that that's the starting place, that it helps us to say we are in the dark wood of error. And so I'm going to take you through a brief exercise. It's not on the screen. This is brief. And I just want you in your, in your head, you can look at me or you can close your eyes or you can drift off wherever with your vision. But I just want you to say these things out loud and just see what happens in your body. Because sometimes we come to church, crosswalk's a little better, I think, uh, than a lot of spaces because we're not really cool with pretense here. Uh, we'd rather be real and authentic. That's a high value uh, here that we live out, I think, pretty well. So um, we're not as put on the Sunday happy face as some other places might be, but we're still human beings. And we still like to hold our cards close to our chest and keep things private. And fake it is what I'm saying, even though you may be struggling inside. So I'm just asking you to just say these things to yourself uh, in a reflective kind of way and just see what happens. Say to yourself, my life isn't perfect. I don't like the way things are going. I don't feel good. You don't have to say them out loud unless you really want to, but you can. Uh, say, I'm sad. Or I'm angry. I'm scared. I'm not at peace. I can't find my people. I'm not sure where to go. I don't know what to do. I need help. Now what she asks us to do with this exercise is just by saying these things out loud. If she's right, as she was with me and with however many people she's coached, is that one or two of these statements may be speaking very much truth about who you are and where you are. And when you heard the phrase and even uttered it just in your mind, I have a hunch that some level of peace, some level of rest showed up for you. Am I right about that? Just saying it. Things aren't like I hoped. I'm sad. I'm angry, whatever it is. Because in our culture, we put on the mask so that people don't think those things are happening. But when we actually say the truth, 
we actually open the door for peace because it's true. Well, we're in the dark wood of air, all of us at some points in our lives, sometimes more than others, and we're deaf, dumb, and blind to all to our true selves. And we got to ask the question, well, how in the world did we get here? And at this, uh, Dante talks about it. He, he's in this dark wood, and he's looking around trying to figure out a way out, and he sees this mountain. He calls it Mount Delectable. And Mount Delectable is this escape route. You can see the sun shining up on the mountain. He says, I just got to get up that mountain. And so he tries to go over to the mountain, but as soon as he tries to get uh, over to the mountain and cross the valley to, to make the ascent, these wild animals started showing up. Uh, a tiger, and then a lion, and then other things. And he was terrified about what he couldn't get across. There was no way that he could get to Mount Delectable, even though he knew Mount Delectable was all those things that he really, really wanted. They also represented all the things that were not really true of himself. And so what, uh, what Beck says is that uh, we have different cultural influences that are sort of our own Mount Delectable. Other ways to go that aren't really the way to get to our true selves, aren't really the way to get to our, our greatest happiness or, or deep joy. And she talks about cultural influences. One is of success and what success looks like. My hunch is at some point in your life, uh, you, have, you have been the recipient of the damage that the cultural rendering of success has put on you. It starts very young. It starts very young for girls, probably more than boys, about what you need to look like. Success means you have to look like Barbie or whatever. That, that depends where we are in history, right? If you're uh, in the Middle Ages or if you're in uh, a different period, say 400 years ago, if you're stick thin like Barbie, then you're a freak of nature. Well, actually, they found out that if Barbie actually lived, she would be a freak of nature. But anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> the reality is, depending on what century we're living in, dictates what a successful look is, right? And I bet, it, I know it, I know that if you're a woman here, because it's so much worse for women in our culture than it is for men. Men can look like this and get away with it. But women, no, no, no. There's a very clear standard of what you have to look like, and I'm positive that you have felt the tyranny of that call to success of what you're supposed to look like. And I'm sure it's caused you pain. I'm sure it's made you behave in certain ways that didn't really feel natural. It's not been healthy at all. And it has messed you up in different ways because you're human. How can it not? And it at times has thrown you into the dark wood of error. Maybe for boys, maybe it's tough guy stuff. Maybe it's looking manly and all that and having to prove yourself and beat whatever that might be. And that's its whole thing uh, too. Uh, and I know those pressures that are there. Um, you know, one, one lucky thing that I had is that I've, I've been tall you know, ever since I got out of the womb. You know, started off as a 10-pounder <laughs> and just kept eating my way higher and bigger and all that. So I never got picked on as a kid. Uh, the only time I ever got anything close to that was when I moved to a new school and I was the biggest kid in that school in eighth grade and it definitely freaked out the current biggest kid in the school who happened to be a bully. And so he... He called a fight with me. I'm like, Jason, I don't even know who you are, you know? But he called for it, right? And so we had to have this fight, you know, after school. So you know what I did? 
I ran away. <laughs> That's what I did. I'm like, this guy wants to fight. I'm not a fighter. I like to play football and stuff, but I don't want to fight. Why do I want to do that? You know, so I didn't show up, and the whole thing kind of went over. You'd be the bully in the school. I don't care. But I know that this thing exists for guys, too, in its own weird way. Not nearly, I'm positive, not nearly to the same degree as women. I know that when my son um, was, I felt it more than my son did for my son. Uh, when my son was in uh, marching band and uh, wanted to get involved uh, deeper with the leadership of stuff, which meant he was heading toward uh, being the drum major, he had to learn to spin a mace, which is a very long pole with a bell type thing on the top of it. And when he first came home, I didn't even know what a mace was. I didn't know what was going on. I just knew that his buddies in the band said, hey, we think you should do this because we see the leadership potential in you. And I was like, well, okay. All I saw was my son uh, out on, the, on our court uh, just spinning a stick around. And I was like, if it brings you joy, fine. But you know what, my, what the thing was for me? It was like, I don't want my son to take any grief from anybody at school. That's it. I don't want him to have to go through that. So we have all kinds of pressures in our world. And once you get out of school, it doesn't really get any better because then it becomes on, well, what's your salary? What's your benefits package? How much vacation do you get? Uh, what kind of car are you driving? Uh, how old is that car? Is it a significant car? Because it says something about you, apparently, in our culture. Uh, what is your zip code? Um, how many kids do you have? How are your kids doing anyway? Are they successful or not? Of course, success, again, defined uh, by the culture around us. All of these things shape us and shape us and shape us. Have you ever felt any pressures from our culture on what success looks like? I'm the only one. Okay, well, that's why the book meant a lot to me, I guess. Uh, she also talks about advertising. Uh, we live in a consumer-driven culture. That means, and we've known this for a long time, there's a whole science behind it that really came into fashion in the 20s and 30s of the last century to figure out how to make you miserable with the wonderful, perfect thing that you have <laughs> so that you will buy something you don't really need, but they want to sell. And so she actually takes you through an exercise in her book uh, where it has you really think through a current item. We just got through with Christmas where, you know, everything is turbocharged. And so um, you think about the thing that you really, really want, that thing that advertising has told you you must have. And she has you just sit with it for a while. And how does it feel? And most of us, when we think about that thing, it doesn't make us feel more peace. It probably makes us a little more anxious, a little keyed up. And then she talks about, you know, what would it look like if you just said to yourself, I want deep peace. I want deep peace. And you actually say that, then you realize what it really feels like. And you see the tension and the contrast of what the advertising uh, industry has done uh, to not give us peace, even though they're fulfilling our dreams, but actually creating more turmoil. That's another pressure in our particular time and place that is really unique uh, in modern history. It's only been the last hundred years that they really made this a science. Envy and want and greed, sure, that's been around forever, but we made a science out of it, and we've done it very well. The final thing she talks about is the hustle. 
Well, this is sort of related to, um, to some of the things I've talked about, about putting on the happy face and, and all that. The hustle is how are we getting along in society when society is looking at us, wanting us to hustle along. It's those things that we do. It's putting on the happy face. It's trying to, you know, live in uh, the same pace as the Joneses next door. It's, it's making sure that everybody thinks that everything is going just perfectly uh, for us. So she gives us this little exercise to help us recognize or detect our hustle. So she says these things. And just see if any of these things uh, stick with you. Do you ever hang out with people you don't truly enjoy? Who are they? Do you consistently make yourself do anything or many things you don't really want to do? Make a list. Are there any things you do solely out of fear that not doing, fear that not doing them will upset someone or lower your value in someone else's eyes? What are they? So do you see what she's saying there? Do you ever do anything, not because it's something you really want, because you don't want to disappoint somebody, or you don't want to look bad in their eyes, so you just do it. Has anybody ever been guilty of that? <laughs> Thank you, Danny, for your confession. It's a safe space. Are there any times in your daily life where you're consistently pretending to be happier or more interested than you really are? And what areas, relationships, job activities, places, do you tend to do this? When are you trying to impress the people around you so that they'll be impressed with you? <laughs> do you ever say things you know aren't true or aren't fully true or things you don't really truly mean? These are all evidences that all of us have messed with at different times in our lives that evidence that we are hustling. Mount Delectable was all about the hustle. Well, right about this time when he realizes that Mount Delectable is not the way out, that he actually is going to get killed if he tries to cross the valley and ascend what seems to be the only way out, along comes a friend, a guide along the way. Martha Beck calls them soul teachers. For, for Dante, his soul teacher ended up being Virgil the poet Virgil from centuries before he lived. Why Virgil? Because in Dante's world, Virgil was his favorite poet. So it's this person he conjured in his mind from a distant past because he respected them so much. And all of a sudden, while he's in the dark wood, this soul friend shows up who's going to act as a guide for him through the dark wood and beyond. She says that these things tend to happen uh, for people almost like magic, like when we really need the person, when we really need that guide to come along. And that could be an actual person. It could be a book. It could be a song. It could be an author. It could be any number of things. I think it has more to do with being open to it, being honest about it. And then we find out, to kind of steal from Elizabeth Tausch earlier, that there's an abundance of reality and resources available to us at all times that the soul teachers that we need, those guides that we need to go forward, have been there the whole time, even as we're struggling and dying on the vine, but we weren't able yet to see. We weren't able yet to be honest with ourselves and say, I'm lost in the woods and I need help. But as soon as we do, as soon as we know we're in trouble, it's like they come out of the woodwork. This has been my experience. So she says the soul teachers are... Are known kind of by these things, that they capture our attention. So it's 
Sometimes it's just an aha moment that's happened to me where all of a sudden a book title just jumps out at me. That's probably my biggest go-to is book titles or authors and hearing them on podcasts and things. But you, something about that title, you may pass it a hundred times, but now, boom, it's just right there. They come with a dash of magic. It's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like God intended this thing to happen right there which is complicated theologically but not really if we understand that God is active all the time and if Brian feels a nudge to sing this particular song this day maybe it is the very spirit of God that is aware of things that are in the water that need to be addressed it doesn't mean that God is a puppeteer that God uh, just because God influences everyone and everyone at all times uh, they offer genuine love they don't share our culture's values. They don't give a rip about what the culture says is success. They don't care about our hustle. In fact, they'll be the first ones to hold a mirror to your face and say, why are you lying to me right now? Why are you telling me everything's okay when everything about your life is not okay? At least not everything is okay. And they also know when to quit. There's a, <laughs> uh, Beck offers a quote uh, from Buddhism. And uh, the, the quote uh, goes like this. Uh, should you ever come across the Buddha on your path, kill the Buddha. <laughs> and part of the idea is that there is a time uh, when the mentor that your soul guide, the one who's been helpful, there's a time uh, when their season as your mentor and your guide is over. And the soul guide, the mentor, should be the first one to know that and to be the one to say, it's time for you uh, to find a new mentor. That's a good sign. So, uh, so we get these guides that come along and sometimes uh, inner guidance is exactly uh, what we need and it comes for us. I won't take you through the exercise because I could spend the rest of the day with you uh, doing her exercises which I think are quite good but we'll get through there uh, eventually and I hope that you'll look at the resources. One of the things that Virgil says and makes crystal clear as Dante finds himself in the dark wood of air where he's confused and lost and he knows it and he admits it as he tried to go the, the only way he knew how to, which was up Mount Delectable with all the cultural hustle, he realizes that that is going to lead to his death. So he finds solace in Virgil who's happy to see him and happy to guide him and he points in the direction of a cave that leads to a very dark place. It's the inferno. It's hell. And one of the things that Virgil says to him, in, in essence is, and this is, you've probably heard this in counseling, is that the only way out is through. The only way out is through. And we don't like this. If we're dealing with a hard issue in our life, be it a marital issue or a personal issue or a physical issue, whatever, we much prefer denial. Uh, we ride with denial, which keeps us in the dark wood of error, or worse, for as long as possible because we don't want to go through hell. But the only way out is through. If we really want healing, if we really want depth, the only way out is to deal with the pain, to look at it and see what's really happening, to get it out on the table. That's a biblical principle, by the way. Uh, how do you get rid of the darkness? You bring it out into the light. You start being honest about what is. And that's what we find out is what hell is all about. It doesn't sound very welcoming. At the, at the gate to the inferno, the hell gate to the inferno, it has this quote. 
Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. <laughs> Let's go, right? Well, what they're really getting at is everything that you thought that you could short-circuit this thing, uh, to have a shortcut, to avoid going through here, all those hopes, that's not going to happen. Uh, she, Beck, talked about this from her own journey. Um, she and her husband were both Harvard PhD graduates. Actually, she was just before she was going uh, into her uh, PhD work. She already had one child and started a PhD program, and pretty soon after she found out she was pregnant with another child. And soon into her pregnancy, uh, they discovered that this child was going to be born with Down syndrome. And so the medical professionals around her, especially uh, those in the you know, academic elites, are really encouraging her to terminate the pregnancy. She came from a very conservative religious tradition, which is telling her, absolutely not. So she has this tension that she's trying to live with. She decided to keep the baby for all of the best reasons, not because of any, any outside pressure. She just, that's what she really felt that she needed to do. So she's listening to her inner voice and listening to guidance and all that, and that's what she decided she wanted to do. And she didn't hold any grief or grudge against anybody who would choose one way or the other. But during her pregnancy, she was holding out hope. Holding out hope that the tests were wrong, doctors misread the tests, or that by some strange miracle, uh, God would somehow interfere and deal with the extra chromosome in every instance in that child's body so that the child wouldn't be born with Down syndrome. Because she, coming from the academic elite, just wondered, how does this make any sense that my child is born into two PhDs from Harvard. What kind, of, what kind of pain is this child? That's all the stuff that she was thinking about. That's what it means about abandon all hope, ye who are in her here. Let it go. Open yourself up to what lies ahead. The strange thing is that Beck points out, and it's right in uh, Dante's text, is that Virgil's attitude as he uh, takes Dante along is not one of terror, but joy. <laughs> Follow me. Follow me into the inferno, uh, where we'll learn a lot about what has brought us to this point. Because in the inferno, we're going to find out, we're going to be facing fear, we're going to be embracing reality, and we're going to be killing cowardice. The only way we're going to get through that, as Beck talks about, is to trust the now, which I'll talk about in a moment. And the hope is this, that paradise awaits. And the question for us is, are you ready to go through hell? Because it is, after all, the only way out is to actually go through it and see it. Dante's book is not what we thought. It actually ends up being great hope. There's one thing that she says, and you may hear this, and you may have already decided many moments ago that you have no interest in this series, and we'll see you in February. That's, <laughs> that's completely understandable. Uh, why would you willingly uh, want to go through hell together, right? <laughs> well, because it's the only way through. And if we really want to become our true selves and live out of that kind of peace and uh, profound shalom, uh, it's the only way through. And one of the things she said as we face our cowardice and realize you know, how difficult this is, and it is difficult. It is difficult. 
This has been difficult. This has been, a, I can tell you from personal experience, uh, as I've gone through my entire life, it is difficult. In my recent year and a half or so, as coming to grips with things that were happening in me, difficult. I don't want to see certain things about myself, but the only way out is through. She says that cowardice uh, has to be killed, and we will have our cowardice show up in spades uh, because we don't want to look at things because of what it might mean about us. She says our power, though, is trusting now. Kind of a mind bender, but here's what I want to tell you. The past is past. It does not exist anymore. The past is not coming back to you. Now, the influence of the past has probably been shaping you all along, but the past is gone. You no longer hold the past. I also want to tell you something about the future. It does not exist. Think about it. Does the future exist? Your answer should be, well, not yet. But we hope someday. <laughs> the only thing we have is right now. And if we just spend a moment with the right now, which meditation helps us do by focusing on our breath, by being fully present, you know what we discover when we spend time right now? We're okay. We're okay. We're still breathing. The way to get out is to stay in the now. One step at a time. One look in the mirror at a time. Because now is the only thing that is real and that we have. We have no control over anything else, but we can be here right now and be available. So I want to end you, uh, end with you today uh, with a quote uh, from Thomas Merton. Unfortunately, I got this graphic uh, online, loved the prayer, and I know it's small, so uh, sorry about that. In my aging eyes, I'm going to just stand right here and read it. Uh, so, the prayer of Thomas Merton. This is the guy who coined the phrase, uh, our true selves. Died tragically uh, in the early 70s. And then Richard Rohr kind of picked up his mantle as a, kind of an Elijah, Elisha thing. So, says, my Lord God, just, you need to hear this. This is a guy of incredibly profound faith. Intellectually, uh, experientially, deeply walking with God. And he says, my Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know um, myself. Did I ever get that right? I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. 
But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may not know nothing, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen. Brian is here. Where did Brian?